You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. Think like a Nobel Prize winner. Brian Keating, who you've probably listened to before on this podcast, he's interviewed a dozen or so Nobel Prize winners, and he wrote a book about what he learned from them. How can we start thinking the way Nobel Prize winners think. And I actually, first off, a lot of them have imposter syndrome. I didn't know that. But now I have imposter syndrome because I wrote the foreword to the book. Or well, as always, a great conversation with Brian where I learned so much and heard so many interesting stories, particularly about what wasn't included in some of these interviews. So here it is. Brian, think like a Nobel Prize winner. I really, first off, I read it twice because I read it when I wrote the forward. Thank you very much yeah. for asking me to write yes. the forward. Talk about imposter syndrome, which is something many of these Nobel Prize winners seem to experience. I definitely had imposter syndrome writing a forward for a book called Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner. <laughs> and well, I, I, yeah, it, as I say, you know, just because you have imposter syndrome doesn't necessarily mean you're not a total fraud. 
Uh, so, <laughs> right. It could be. It could be you have imposter syndrome because you really know you're an imposter. So that's right. Yeah, it could be totally accurate. But what was so surprising to me, uh, you know, thinking about it was hey, I've looked up. You know, I've had my issues with the Nobel Prize, as you know, but never with the winners. You know, it's not like the winners literally cannot choose themselves, as we spoke about when you were on my podcast over a year ago. Uh, they can't choose themselves. Like that was the one instruction that I got when nominating Nobel Prize winners in 2015 was I could not nominate myself. And that was basically the only thing that they adhered to from Alfred Nobel's will. So they couldn't choose yourself. So they got there. Someone else must have chosen them. And I've never had problems with the people that won it, but the process I think is very corrupt. You've had my friend Uni Turatini on who wrote uh, Betraying the Nobel. Yeah, uh, she, she so focused on the Nobel Peace Prize, which is really enlightening the way some of those people were selected but you know i think what with physics you so th think like a nobel prize winner i described it in the intro um which i'll say after this podcast but uh you focus on i think i th I always think of physics and the peace prize maybe the writing prize as kind of the the most known nobel prizes but i always think of physics as the smartest nobel prize this is the one that rewards intelligence these are people who are not just producing something uh, good like the nobel peace prize or the nobel prize in literature they're discovering something completely new and you interviewed you know all of these nobel prize winners in physics who they won the nobel prize ranging over the decades so you write about how what what do they have in common your takeaways what are what could the readers or listeners takeaways be and one there's several themes through it but the first is you talk a lot about imposter syndrome in this book and you yeah. find and, and but also there was other things i picked up too some had no self-confidence some had a lot of self-confidence and some criticizing others said they were too they weren't self-critical enough so what's the story is there a real common thread did they all have imposter syndrome but also a lot of confidence what's the story yeah according to themselves you know seven out of the nine that I interviewed. And since then, I've interviewed another Nobel Prize winner that'll be in volume two. So get your typing hands ready for four. Well, I haven't won it yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that about, uh, about the literature prize. Uh, there was a Japanese Nobel Prize uh, literature prize winner in 1995 who uh, was recently saying that, you know, when he won the Nobel Prize, he said to his mother, see mom, I said uh, I would win the Nobel Prize as a kid, uh, and I did it. I just won the Nobel Prize in literature, and this is in 1995. And she said, "Yeah, but you promised me you'd be in physics." So even in the even these like the categories that you exalt so much, there is this kind of yeah. Even the, he must have felt like an imposter because it's not you know quote unquote you know. And what would he, what would an economics prize? Remember that prize was changed. The name was changed from the Nobel Prize in economics by dint of a lawsuit and legal wranglings between Alfred Nobel's, you know, next of kin. He had no uh, direct heir, no children of his own, but his brothers had children. And uh, they made them change it to the very winsome and, and beautiful name, the Swedish Central Bank Prize in honor of the memory of Alfred Nobel. So that's that's the actual economics prize. Wow. Title. So can you say, if you win that prize now, can you say you won the Nobel Prize? Well, look at, you know, Paul Krugman's bio and Twitter and you'll you'll get your answer there. Yeah, they, they I'm always sure say. he says he won the Nobel Prize. I'm not even, I don't even yes. have to look. Exactly. So uh, for for those reasons, yeah, there is this this recurring theme. It's not in all of them. Uh, but what's interesting, and they all think about it, even the ones that don't claim not to have the, the imposter syndrome all felt it. And that was really 
you know, when you start writing a book, you never know where it's going to go on a good day, you know, but let alone like kind of in the middle. And then you're like, wow, this is like the third or fourth person to mention that the imposter syndrome. And really for me, it hit home, as I mentioned, by your co-laureate uh, who wrote the co-forward with you, uh, Dr. Barry Barish, uh, formerly of Great Caltech. Now, in the book. Yeah, so he is uh, he's a phenomenal uh, individual, kind of like, I call him my avuncular avatar because he's uh, he's really what I aspired to be in many ways. But I, I think even me- using the word avuncular starts to qualify you for the Nobel Prize, but, but go ahead. <laughs> well, it's funny because this guy that I want to introduce you to, uh, eventually my friend David Perel, who runs a very, very successful online writing course and this Building a Second Brain project he's involved with. Um, anyway, he, he has a video with this uh, other guy, Ali Abdal, and they talk about like words that people know and use, words that people don't know but use, words that people use and don't know, and then words that people don't use and don't know. And he's like, you could describe our relationship as, you know, as you know, funny or hilarious, but you would never call it risible. And I'm always like, I, I want to I aim for that vibe. I want to aim for the risible vibe that, what does that risible nobody mean? ever... It means like laughable or hilarious, but usually in a derogatory sense. He's, he's but anyway, risable. yeah, so I'm using a vuncular. You're, you're, you're putting him down if you say, oh, he's, he's too risable. He's- well, I'm having on a very controversial guest this week who's you know, advocating along with his wife. Uh, this is Brett Weinstein for a change. I get the other half of the Weinstein uh, clan is showing up on my podcast talking about their you know, novel approaches to COVID, et cetera. That'll be out hopefully by the time people listen to this. Oh, yeah. That but, sounds interesting. I, you know, he was, but, he was uh, arguing for ivermectin. I remember there was a, right. a Facebook yeah. thread I was in that, that um, he was, he, people were, I think it was on Quillette, actually. People were very yeah. upset at him. And they were shutting down his YouTube channel or demonetizing it. And since he got fired from Evergreen State University for not participating in the Whites Leave Campus movement a couple of years ago, he and his wife were basically fired, even though they had tenure. Um, you know, his income stream was severely reduced, to say the least. So he is not a professor anymore. And you know how lucrative that is. So, yeah, he has his po- – so that when they threatened to demonetize his YouTube channel, it was pretty controversial. Anyway, um, getting back to the imposter syndrome, I mean, the reason that really spoke to me with Barry is that he said the imposter syndrome got worse after he won the Nobel Prize. In other words, like, we all have a basal, a threshold level of imposter syndrome if you're, like – if you're not a total – um, you know, kind of narcissist. And uh, what really revealed to me, since he had it more, I said, it's kind of unusual, James, that the opposite of something is the same as that thing. In other words, like, if you're, what's the opposite of jealousy? Like, if I'm jealous of your success, you're in the top zero, I, I checked, you're in the top 0.01% of all podcasts worldwide. And oh, that's good I, to know. I, I'm, I'm not jealous of you. I would like to be, you know, kind of within a factor of, you know, a, a million of, no, no, I, I'll get there someday. But, but, um, but, you know, I'm not jealous of you. What's the opposite of je- Like, I'm happy for you. I, I feel, you uh, know, there is proud. a, there is a word. There's a uh, mit Freud, which is, oh, happy, yeah. as opposed to Schadenfreude. Yeah. Which Schadenfreude is, is the opposite. That's yeah. You're right. happy for someone's failure, probably because you're jealous of them. So you're happy for their failure. And, and in mit Freud is you're happy for someone's success. And, um, this was in Robert Greene's book, uh, the the influence or laws no, of the laws of uh, uh, nature, the laws of human nature, and oh, okay. uh, you know, he recommends people should practice myth Freud, but mm-hmm. and I agree, and and actually this guy, so so just to close, sorry to close the loop, the the opposite of the so imposter syndrome is based on insecurity, inadequacy, and um, and fear of being discovered as a charlatan or not fitting in. Um, obviously, I've mastered and overcome those fears. But, um, but the opposite of that is arrogance, right? It's like, um, which also stems from insecurity 
inadequacy. Uh, so in other words, the root cause for both of these psychological phenomena, imposter syndrome on one hand, narcissistic arrogance on another hand, they stem from insecurity. So I found that very interesting because uh, you don't normally see that. Like you said, mid-Freud and schadenfreude, they're stemming from two different psychological compulsions. One, uh, you know, envy and, 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 and wishing harm, essentially, and taking pleasure in someone's uh, this uh, favor. And then the other one is totally opposite. And yet these two emotions, imposter syndrome and arrogance, uh, they come from the same root emotion. Yeah, and it's, it's so interesting because first, I think all of these Nobel Prize winners who think that they're, that, who experience imposter syndrome, so they, they're accepting the Nobel Prize and they're probably thinking of the historical significance of this, you know, Einstein won and, you know, yes. all these great minds won. And I think they're probably right, actually. Like, I, mm -hmm. I, I think our reaction when we, when we hear someone has imposter syndrome is to think, oh, that's crazy. They just won the Nobel Prize. They're not imposters. They, they, they deserve. I think they're actually right. Like they, 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 you know, they, for, for most of their lives, they revered, for instance, Einstein or Marie Curie or whoever. Mm -hmm. And, and their, their accomplishments probably seem to them insignificant to the theory of relativity and E equals MC it's, squared. It's interesting. Do you know that Einstein thought almost every one of his thoughts about his own theories was either wrong or not proven in his lifetime, or he thought was irrelevant and insignificant. In other words, there were only two things that were that saw confirmation during his lifetime, and he wasn't known for uh, insecurity, by the way. He used to say once one of these theories was confirmed, the theory of general relativity via the famous eclipse of 1919 um, that you and I witnessed um, back way back when, that uh, that he, if if the reporter asked him, what if the results of the observation were not consistent? with your theory of relativity. And he said, then I would have felt sorry for the good Lord because my equations are correct. So he had no uh, imposter syndrome that we know about, except that he was in awe of Isaac Newton, who, as I point out, when Barry told me, Barry Barish, winner of the 2017 Nobel Prize, who really inspired me to start asking questions about the imposter syndrome, he told me that he had the imposter syndrome when he saw Einstein's name in this logbook that he had to accept the Nobel Prize, uh, you know, when he accepts it from the King of Sweden, you have to sign. I got my chunk of gold. I got my share of the $1 million prize purse, et cetera. I got my portrait. Um, and he said, I've had such imposter syndrome never before and, and only since then it has gotten worse. And I said, Einstein felt the imposter syndrome about Isaac Newton calling him the greatest contributor, not only to science, but to Western thought. Not, not, <laughs> in other words, he, and it's true, by the way, Newton influenced Thomas Jefferson in the writing of the Constitution, as a Jay knows uh, from his uh, studies of the Constitution. <laughs> and then lastly, as I said to him, Wait, how, did, how, did, how did Newton uh, influence Jefferson? I didn't know that. So he used principia, the principia were the principles of mathematical um, and physical logic. Mm -hmm. So the laws of, you know, of, of all of um, what we call mechanics and, and aspects of calculus, et cetera, et cetera. And those would, were predicated on axioms that were, um, that were going back to the, to the ancient Greeks uh, were sound. They would say things like such and such is self-evident. So they would say that two parallel mm. lines, James, ne that pass through two different points, um, they never meet. That was claimed to be self-evident because, of course, they don't. Uh, that, that the angles interior to a triangle all sum up to 180 degrees. That was considered to be self-evident or could be proven. Now, by the way, those aren't true. They're only true in flat, what's called flat space. But as you know from losing the Nobel Prize, the universe could be flat. It could be curved like a basketball. It could be curved like a Pringle chip. 
it can have all these different uh, geometries. And so it's not true that parallel lines never meet. They meet on the surface of a sphere. They don't meet on the surface of a piece of paper. So Newton used those same terminologies, including the notion of self-evidentiary proof. And then obviously, what is the first line of the Declaration of Independence? We hold these truths to be self-evident. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know. Um, uh, and he knew Euclid and he knew Newton. And he wasn't that much older than him, right? Or younger than Newton. Right. And I guess then you're right. So Declaration of Independence sort of starts with a, essentially a set of axioms as he makes the proof that there's a better way to live than being indentured to England. But I don't really think Einstein had imposter syndrome. I don't think he got the Nobel Prize and walked around. Like, I think part of imposter syndrome is not only feeling like you got something or you're someplace where you don't deserve to be, but I think it's also a fear that everyone else feels the same way that you do. Isaac Newton also claimed the imposter syndrome, but it kind of dovetails in what you just said, but he felt that he was inadequate compared to Jesus Christ, <laughs> um, who he said that he failed to live up to, except in one respect, which is that he died a virgin. Isaac Newton died a virgin, and he claimed that was his greatest accomplishment because that was the most Christ-like that he could be. Um, so now he's also famous for this phrase, I'm sure you've heard, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants. So he said, if I have seen farther than others, it is only because I stood on the shoulders of giants, which sounds really cool, right? Um, but uh, on the other hand, he was partially, they think that he was partially uh, um, burning or roasting one of his enemies. He was a very vindictive person, apparently. Um, he spent a lot of time thinking about how to torture counterfeiters and and do all sorts of alchemy. Well, he had a, he had a vicious battle with uh, Leibniz as who, Leibniz, as yeah. who invented uh, uh, calculus. Calculus, that's right. And uh, but so and I think Leibniz was short, and so he was making like a play at his expense that like uh, I looked over the shoulders of little people. In other words, that's why I saw so far. On the other hand, you know, it could have been like false humility because like didn't the other people stand on the shoulders of giants too? And anyway, the, the, the point I'm trying to make is that um, you might be right because like we all, just as he stood on the shoulders of giants, um, so ev everyone can stand on the shoulders of giants, right? There's nothing unique about standing on the shoulders of giants. So it's kind of deflecting a compliment in a sense that maybe wouldn't be so genuine. I mean, hopefully he won't retaliate Isaac Newton uh, against us. But, uh, but the point being that, uh, you know, I wanted to write the book because so many of my students and postdocs and just people I know, if you look around anywhere on the internet, like I would say right now, for some reason, the zeitgeist is full of examples of the imposter syndrome where people don't feel like they deserve a certain number of followers or, or creators or like they do things to get followers and then they get them and they don't feel they deserve it because the way they got it and blah, blah, blah. And again, uh, most of those people who, who do feel that way deserve to feel that way. I will mm -hmm. say every time I have felt imposter syndrome and it's been often, mm -hmm. I was an imposter. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I just, it was justified. Yeah. And I think you, you don't really know if you're an imposter or not until much later, because think of, yeah. think of like legacy. You don't really know what your legacy is until after you die, but you're dead. So right. like, like Einstein has this huge legacy and a lot of the things he did has had ramifications over the decades. He lived to see a lot of the ramifications, but you know, some people do, some people don't. Some of these people who won in the Nobel Prize in your book won for very esoteric theoretical things, and you and you have to yeah. question. Okay, yes, what they did was clearly the cutting edge on understanding how the universe began, what the universe is made of, how the universe works. But in terms Those are of the easy to understand things, so the the ones that are hard are topological states of matter that only exist in two dimensions. Yeah, instead so, of three some of those people though are involved in in that stuff. I didn't understand what, what most of these people did. They have to question. They bring this up in your book in some cases, yeah. you know, you don't, you can't really 
think about the outcomes. You can't think about whether it's practical or how important this is. You have to do what you love. You have to do what you're curious about. You know, we can talk about the do what you love part. My sense is they really loved doing what what they do. But Mm -hmm. some of these things, again, even one person, I forget which one said, you can't focus on whether it's practical or not. You just have to, you have to do the work. Yeah. And Sheldon Glashow called it, you know, the importance of doing useless research. And he had this incredibly esoteric. And by the way, it's not a science book, as you know. Neither was my first book. These are the first book was a memoir, and the second book's more of a self. It's actually in self help. Yeah, no, this is insanely readable, and it is self help. But actually, you know, we were talking earlier about Robert Greene's books. It, it reminds me of those a little bit, and that those are so filled with stories of historical people and, and the lessons mm-hmm. you can learn from them. But these are people you spoke to who are alive, who are among the smartest people on the planet as denoted by, you know, winning the Nobel prize in physics. And when they talk, they're not talking, they're not giving a physics lesson. I would say a central theme of the book is curiosity. And this is like almost like a guide into what the most curious people in the world are like and how you can sort of cultivate that kind of curiosity in yourself, because that does they all attribute their success to curiosity but the, yeah. the imposter syndrome made me think though and we'll talk about curiosity in a second and the methods they use and you use to to cultivate it but how many of them do you think are depressed or anxious and the reason mm-hmm. i ask is because when you have a goal like you know figuring out how the universe was born <laughs> that's on the one hand that's a an, an as you put it even possibly an arrogant kind of goal, like to think that you could even come close to such an answer to such a question. And, and, and yet if, you know, there's so much competition in science and academia for the Nobel prize for, you know, for money and, and monetary prizes and funding and so on, there must be an incredible amount of anxiety around that they have around the research they do. And, and they don't know if they're going to succeed or fail. They have no idea. You could do a project right. for 20 years. Like you said, with Einstein, it, what if he, what if, what if 13 years after he published his theory of relativity, it, it, something disproved it? That's anxiety producing. Yeah. And especially one of the laureates, Frank Wilczek is a extremely prolific author and Wall Street Journal uh, contributor, he had to wait 30 years between the theory that everybody told him would result in a Nobel Prize someday. He had to wait his turn because it needed to be confirmed and replicated, et cetera, et cetera. But this took a staggering amount of time to get replicated or to get um, the, the preceding awards to be won. And it made me think of these guys that want to live forever, you know, with life extension prominent in the news now. And my doctor's, you know, phone call notwithstanding, just a couple of minutes ago, uh, you know, people want to live to 150, and uh, you know, and whatever, so you and I can live 100 more years, hopefully. But um, but then there's, first of all, there are questions about, you know, there'll be disparities in wealth because only the rich people, like plasma TVs, when they came out, could be afforded by rich people only. And so, what about us common people, et cetera, et cetera? And then there would be, you know, kind of concerns about, well, if natural causes of death come off the table then only you have to worry about like being killed in an accident and or being killed by a fellow human being. Which like is now solved by COVID because we all just stay indoors. Jay hasn't left his house <laughs> in a year and a half. I know. I saw his fingernails. I don't know how he texts me all the time with those <laughs> fingernails and the tissue boxes on his feet. But thinking about that for a guy who had to wait 30 years 
to guarantee. Imagine if you knew you'd win the Nobel Prize. Like, in other words, he knew he would win the Nobel Prize. It was a, it was a foregone conclusion, just like with the Higgs boson. It's, uh, there's no way the universe could have been structured otherwise. Waiting 40, 50, 60 years, you know, whatever. How do you know you're going to live that long? Imagine the anxiety that would produce. So that was one interesting thing. Uh, by the way, I should say that, you know, for James Altucher show listeners, this week, I wanted, I don't want, I didn't write this book. Uh, first of all, you inspired me or goaded me, however you, you want to say that it's in the acknowledgments, but I think you had, you had the book in you. And I, I appreciate you mentioning me in the acknowledgments. You, you, this is a great book and, 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 you know, it was, it was a really good job. But, but just like you wrote Think Like a Billionaire, which obviously inspired the title um, and, and guided me a lot of the, you know, kind of uh, early connective tissue of the book, um, and kind of this brand that I'm cultivating, whatever. It's not like you read Think Like a Billionaire, you'll become a billionaire, but you think like a billionaire and anybody can think like a billionaire. It costs nothing to think like a billionaire. It costs nothing to think like a Nobel Prize winner. And so much so that I wanted to reduce the price as much as possible. So the ebook is only 99 cents this, this week, you know, as the launch week, we made the, the ebook. I don't care about making money. I want this message to go out. As you say, curiosity, inspiration, collaboration, overcoming anxiety, depression, all these things are on display. And the one thing this book isn't is a physics book. It's not, you know, there, there is a, you know, a couple chapters of equations, unremittent equations and homework assignments. But besides yeah. those, which you got a hundred percent. I'm very impressed People with you. will think that's true, but it's, it's I not know, true. I'm just, I'm just telling everybody. There's no equation. I don't even think I have e equals MC squared in here, which is de rigueur for most uh, authors in science. But anyway, I wanted as many people, especially young people, because these people have tremendous knowledge as the Nobel Prize signifies, but do they have wisdom? I think wisdom is far more interesting than knowledge because Wikipedia has a lot more knowledge than any of these people or the whole of human species could ever have. But it has zero, absolutely zero wisdom. And actually, I don't think that that's as valuable. Like nowadays, we're in a we're in a current like the currency of the new world is wisdom. It's not knowledge anymore because everyone is as kind of reached parity with wisdom with knowledge. You can get as much knowledge as as Elon Musk in a, in a nanosecond, but can you get as much wisdom as? you know, these wise individuals can. And it's, it wasn't clear to me in the beginning that people who won the Nobel Prize would have any wisdom. In fact, one of them said, you know, if you think these guys are smart, just watch them on the, on the day of the ceremony trying to get their eggs at breakfast. Like, <laughs> you'll well, quickly be disabused that these are some, like, supernatural people. But in this case, I happened to find these nine special individuals that have a tremendous amount of wisdom. But it was my job to extricate that from because they don't think in those terms. They're much more technically savvy than I am. And, but I think in terms of the soft skills that actually made them partially so successful. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love 
you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop. Really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do. But I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes 
is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. First off, I agree with you that knowledge and, and information is just a commodity right now. Like it's, it's everywhere. You don't have to spend years learning it in school. The real, as you, uh, you, you put it as wisdom, I'm going to change the name a little bit and call it discovery. Mm -hmm. So having mm -hmm. an ability to discover what nobody else knows seems to be real wisdom because mm. breaking discovery down, you have to have an ability to go against the crowd because it's completely yeah. new and, and people will often contest you for even trying to find something new. Why don't you uh, respect the established view of things? You have to have uh, the, the skill set to, to, you know, you have to have the creativity to even wonder where there might be a new thing that exists. You have, you have to know what you don't know and know yeah. where it is to find. And then you have to go That's and find right. it and, and prove it. Like I think, I, and I think all of these people almost by definition, they've discovered something completely new and it's a big risk. They could have been wrong. It, maybe, right. maybe they could have spent their whole lives thinking there was something new over here in this dusty little corner of the universe. And turns out there was nothing. And <laughs> that's right. Some people probably that probably has there's probably a whole list of people who that happened to, but these people, I don't say they're lucky. Clearly they've used all their skills to a lot of them credit luck. A lot of them credit luck with their success. Let, let me ask let me ask you this. So we've talked about Dunning Kruger bias before. It's the idea that when you start doing an activity, you have this cognitive bias where you think you're great at it. So yeah, maybe like I'm the, I'm the world's leading expert in the Dunning Kruger. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so it's like the, the, the classic example is in a survey, nine out of 10 people think they're an above average driver, <laughs> but really only four out of 10 could be. And right. I always say I'm the one out of 10 that knows he's a below average driver. That's why I don't even have a license. But uh, I, I think Dunning-Kruger bias is a real powerful cognitive bias in a positive way because it keeps mm. you, when everyone else is thinking, what's this guy trying to prove this theory? He's an idiot. He can't do that. Yeah. And, but that guy thinks he's smart enough to do it. So, cause of Dunning Kruger bias and, exactly. and it keeps you persevering until you do it. Like I, I've been writing, you know, books for, or, or other things for, for 30 years. I've been writing every single day. And for the first 10 years, I always thought from the beginning I was great, <laughs> but I now realize looking back at even stuff from a year ago, it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> Probably I'll think that a year, a year from now about yeah, stuff right hope, now. Let's hope so. Yeah. Let's hope so. So, so I think, I think imposter syndrome and, and anxiety, they're always used in a negative context, but I think these are very positive forces that, that keep you, that, that could keep you going and keep you motivated, you know, but that's why I was curious though. There is a negative side to it. Like how many of these people have suffered from depression? Yeah. No, I think I think there's a lot, and I think part of it is yeah, it's it's a letdown, right? When you reach the promised land, you know, say say what you want about you know religion or whatever, but you know Moses doesn't get into the promised land. It's a, it's a very powerful lesson, uh, which is that you know we all will have things like you said, like things that were confirmed, like Einstein's 
uh, you know, one of his greatest accomplishments was the inclusivity of this term called the cosmological constant, which, you know, wasn't discovered until 1998. It'd be dead 45 years, you know, 40 years or something by that point. And, um, you know, and, and so these, that nobody would have predicted that revolutionized our understanding of what's going to happen in the far future of our universe, et cetera. And nobody could have predicted that uh, besides him, perhaps. And he actually thought it was a blunder, so he had some humility about it. Uh, but later it turned out his calling it a blunder was a blunder. Hmm. So only Einstein, you know, we say can make these mistakes. But on the other hand, um, you know, what if he had lived, you know, long enough to to witness that? I mean, would he have, like, overcome this this sort of, you know, whatever he, again, I don't, I agree with you. I don't think he was impeded in any way by a lack of, of confidence. So not everybody suffers from it. Like I said, two out of the nine claim that they don't in this book. And, and I think uh, those are instructive too. On the other hand, you ask a very good question. Now, obviously, I'm not a psychologist. I will prescribe medicine. No, no, I won't prescribe medicine. But uh, I wish but, you uh, could. You know, I need I my, I need, there's a lot of medications I would get if I had free reign. Free, yes, exactly. All right. If you knew it would not affect If I knew you a good corrupt term. doctor, but you're just That's a doctor right, yeah. of physics. <laughs> Contact him at his website. Uh, so I, I, I think, you know, that T.S. Eliot said something that is apropos. It happens not to apply to these nine people, but he said, and he won the Nobel Prize in Literature, he wrote, uh, a Nobel Prize is a ticket to your funeral because no one ever does anything after he wins it. And obviously, you know, there are people that do stuff afterwards, but many of these people win it in their 90s or eight, late 80s, the average age, which is part of the reason I wanted to do the interview now, as soon as I got, you know, enough material and interviews and, and content edited it. Um, because I thought, you know, these guys are getting old and, uh, and the women won't talk to me. I tried to get the two living Nobel prize winning women and they both rejected me. So I took me back to high school, which is good. Now I, I, I'm not going to let it. I, hopefully why, why did they, I'll, why did they reject you? You think, I mean, first off people should know we, we, in order to get podcast guests, you have to ask 10 people for every one guest you get. So it's, it's yeah. not out of the ordinary that it, for think like a billionaire, it took a long time. I refused to write the book without a female voice. It took me a long. Yeah. Finally, Sarah Blakely and and I included Tyra Banks in there because her mm -hmm. franchise is a billion dollar franchise. But yeah, I, no, I, I wanted to, and I was I, I considered holding it up until I could get you know somebody to uh, a, a female voice because I think it is it is incredibly instructive. And by the way, about a third to a half of my graduate students are women. And I'm proud of that. And and I've had, you know, at least that many number, you know, of podcast guests be women. Uh, and it just, you know, I just couldn't, there are only two of them that are still alive. One has a policy that she doesn't do interviews because, you know, it's like, you know, she just wants to be fair and not give, you know, podcast to Brian Keating, but not to Joe, you know, James yeah. Altuch or whatever. So she doesn't want to have to think about like who she said yes to and who she said no to. And the other one is just like besieged because she won it only in 2020, less than a year ago now. Yeah, it's, and so uh, she's just like totally overwhelmed and swamped, and so she just can't do it. The, the uh, but, CRISPR, you know, the CRISPR woman, oh, Duda. Well, that was chemistry. That was Duda. Yeah, she won it, and I'm trying to get in touch with her, uh, you know, via back channels, and and um, you know, like I am serious. I am going to put out a second edition, you know, because I of course I think this eventually is a, this is the uh, uh, a topic that only only grows. But but I I, I do want to ask you like. Uh, well, no, no, now I'm forgetting what I wanted to ask actually. <laughs> well, about the depression, the anxiety, the, the letdown that you must feel. And, and yeah. because of that, I think it's true. If you, you can use it one of two ways, as the Bible says, I put before you a double-edged sword, blessing and curse. So it's a blessing on one hand. It's a curse on the other hand, because they don't have any free time. The end of their productivity sometimes awaits, but these guys in particular, 
have been exceptionally adroit at getting an, in, involved and being elder statesmen, which has a negative effect, by the way. Well, well okay, so you, let, let me ask you a couple yeah. of things on this because this, yeah, yeah. this is a lot to unpack. First off, do you think it's really true that physicists, mathematicians, or, or maybe anybody do their best work in their 20s? As, as T.S. Eliot is kind of suggesting that your best work is when you're young. And then when you yeah. win the Nobel Prize, that not only is it the highest honor, so you don't feel motivated to do more work, but you're also older is what he's referring to. I don't think so. I, I think it, it can in mathematics. So my, my father was a mathematician, as you know, my late father. And, uh, and it can in theoretical physics, which is as closely related to mathematics as almost anything. But it's definitely not true in experimental physics, which is, you know, why partially I thank God that I am an experimental physicist. Because we get better with age, like a fine wine. Uh, we get better because we add literal new tools to our toolkit. There's new technology being invented. Probably have a better sense of risk, too. So experiments... Yes. are riskier than theorem proving <laughs> because you have to actually unless build you follow something. the skip the line rule unless you follow the skip the line rule and do as many cheap experiments as you can it's true well that's how we do. that's right. how you but that's using an experimental approach to right. to determine what your big experiment should be you know what a cheap experiment is called? A theory. You know, it's like a, a string theory costs nothing to write a paper, but it could cost a trillion dollars to try to build an accelerator to smash atoms together to test if little strings pop out, right? So there's a high risk. You're absolutely right. And so for that reason, you have to get the low-hanging fruit has to be picked, you know, way well beforehand. So th for those reasons, you accrue just like, uh, would you rather go to the, you know, to the neurosurgeon, you know, resident on his first day or her first day out of out of med school or, you know, the wise and old salt, you know, we're more like surgeons in that sense. He built up like a huge repertoire of, of experiences, encounters, and, and, a, and a statistical distribution that's fascinating that can't be replicated when you're 20 years old. It just cannot be. So I think they're right about the very young uh, theorists. So, so why, why is that, though, about the very young? Is the mind set up so that it could calculate equations faster? Like, what, what is going on in the young mind that may, or, or you just have more energy and, and, and this kind of work requires a lot of energy? It's not identical, but it has certain DNA in common with chess, does it not? I mean, there are chess masters that are older, but but for a long time it was a young person's game. And and I know you have on uh, the chess master, um, what do you call her? The grandmaster. Yeah. She she was just on. And by the way, uh, she but, she was the youngest grandmaster ever when she became a grandmaster. She be right. Probably so this, record. Yeah. But, now but, it's but very I, theoretical. I don't, I, but I don't believe it though that young people. I think young people have a lot of time to pursue their interests, and that's the thing. They don't have a family, but I wonder if I'm just rationalizing. And it re and the young brain really can memorize more, calculate more. We know with dementia, the older brain deteriorates. But right, like neuroplasticity. But like for instance, like, there's yeah. nobody in the top 100 in chess who's uh, over the age of 40, or maybe there's one person. But I wonder about this. I think that you need to do anything well. You could do it. I don't think there's any exclusion principle that prevents that from happening at an older age. Certainly not an experiment. Although you could argue, you know, it's sort of a clock that starts elapsing. So my father used to describe it as, as a clock that turns on, you only have about 10 years. So you could start that 10-year period at 30, at 40, at 50, potentially in chess or in uh, theoretical physics or in mathematics. But no matter what, it, it's just very hard to concentrate on one productive line of, you know, you can't pursue 80 different things. You can't be, you know, worrying about uh, extraneous things, just like writing. Like, 
I heard something said by one of your guests, and he doesn't have any kids. He said, like, every kid you have is a book you don't write. And I'm like, that's horrible. Like, you know, James could have written five more books, you know, whatever. But uh, <laughs> but the point being, how do you... Uh, that that how, assumes how that you... you're a good father. I don't know yeah, if I exactly, qualify. Right. Yeah, <laughs> no, your your kids are are incredibly uh, exceptionally accomplished, and and owes much to Robin. <laughs> but but the point being, if you have a period of time to think without ceasing, Isaac Newton again, uh, he was not a father because he died a virgin, right? Uh, so he he uh, that we know about. I mean, yeah, twenty three and me wasn't working back then, right? But he, uh, you know, he credited. Uh, they asked him, "How did you do? What did you do?" He's like, uh, "Because I thought about them without ceasing." Richard Feynman did a lot of his great work after his first beloved wife died and before he really became more interested in parenting. Albert Einstein was a terrible father. I mean, he he had one son who was committed to a sanatorium, never saw him after, you know, he was like 12 years old, uh, despite writing letters to him, whatever. He just didn't make time. It's not like he couldn't get on a plane and go to Europe and see his kid. Um, but So he never saw him. So I think, yeah, I would like to think that it's not because, only because you have things like kids and and family. Although you see with young women, you know, they are, if they do want to have families, it is incredibly challenging, a burden that we men don't have to deal with. I, you know, it's kind of like a woman tax in academia. It's just, it's hard to, you know, simultaneously give birth and, uh, and then also, you know, continue a laboratory or a theoretical program with graduate students and postdocs that you have to fund. You know, it's not just like, oh, you've got free money raining down on you. Um, so I do think there are some aspects of it that's true, but is it correlative or causative? Uh, it could be a little of both. And, and, and I would say too, uh, you know, as a situation changes, you have to continuously focus on what's good. So for yeah. instance, let's just say hypothetically that, okay, you, you no longer have the brain that could calculate, you know, monster equations and prove them and this and that, well, maybe start switching over to experimental physics because, right. you know, you could be still great at that or, or, or writing about or physics teaching, yeah, or, or writing, teaching yeah. or whatever. Yeah. There's another thing too I want to unpack on what you said earlier, and this is related to the depression and and anxiety and imposter syndrome and so on. It's not fun doing this work. Like right. you could love it and you could think this is the best thing ever and this could, this could be the only thing you want to do in life, but it's 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 hard. And you know, watching I always say and I I probably say it too much on this podcast, but for me, watching TV is fun and makes me happy <laughs> and eating popcorn while I'm watching TV uh, is even, even funner. <laughs> and if I just wanted to be happy, I would do that all the time. But instead I constantly yeah. set myself up for like these obnoxious challenges for myself, which are right. often things I want to do, but I'm miserable 50% of the time. Yeah. I mean, writing is, you know, what did Hemingway say? You know, it's very simple to be a writer, just sit down in a chair and bleed out on the typewriter. Yeah. Or, um, or stand up like, who, comedy. Who's going to volunteer to do like, like, you know, trying to do stand up comedy for the past six or seven years. It's, sometimes it's great. And sometimes people are laughing at you and not with you. And yeah. So, right. You know, everything. So like, balancing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. So, so how do the, how, how do they, how does anybody justify? Like they, they, all these people, they're so smart. They could have gotten tenure easily, not pursue a Nobel prize. Like is something wrong with them that they then spent essentially an extra 20 years of energy going the extra lengths to, to be one of the few people who would ever win this. And James, by the way, we're saying this with uh, survivorship bias, at least yeah. in my case. So in other words, I've gotten tenured on the chancellor's professor of physics here. You know, I've, I've gotten all the, 20 years ago, you know, like it was much, you know, think about what's happening now where people see um, this, this thing where these people, 
in their day and age, you know, some of these people got tenure at age, you know, 27. And, you know, I didn't get tenure until I was in my 30s, early 30s. Um, you know, these, these, you know, it was different and it's getting worse. So I've had students quit recently and say, basically, like, I don't want to be like you, dad. You know, <laughs> like, I don't, I don't want, I've seen your life. I see how you, like, are in this constant struggle. You're, like, rarely in the laboratory with me working on stuff. And I feel guilty, Jay. It's like, you know, with your kids, I have to drive my kids to school. And I'm like, I kind of rationalize that that's parenting, you know, because we try to talk about like spiritual or philosophical things or even physics or or even like driving or politics with my older kids Um, and increasingly, you know, with the younger ones. But, but, you know, is it really the same as like, you know, really quality time without my phone or not driving rather or whatever? No, it's probably not. But I do think about that, the guilt that I feel with my graduate students and postdocs, because like the thing that got you into it, it's like sex. (laughs) <laughs> you know, sex, the outcome of sex, James, produces children, which then prevents you from having sex ever again, right? So, <laughs> it's unless self, if you're, it's you know, self-sabotaging. Unless you're, you know, Genghis Altucher over there. <laughs> but, uh, but, the, but the point that I'm trying to make is, you know, the act of becoming a successful professor now means that you no longer have time to be a successful physicist. And, and rarely do I get into the laboratory. You know, I do get satisfaction from meeting with my students who are then in the laboratory, but it's not the tinkering, it's not the playful attitude, which I think, you know, as, as Ray Weiss, who won the Nobel Prize alongside Gar- Barry Barish in 2017 for LIGO, detecting two black holes colliding a billion light years away, um, uh, you know, with a vibration in their system at less than a billionth the diameter of a proton. I mean, this is a successful guy. He says, if it's not fun, get out of it. And you mentioned in, in the book a couple of times, uh, and and I think maybe it's just a matter of definitions, but you mentioned that passion is not important. And I kind of yeah. think passion is a little important, but there might be a cause versus correlation here in that mm-hmm. as you start succeeding at something that you're good at, you're going to feel more passion for it. And as opposed, you know, maybe there was an initial spark that got you going, but you know, to sit down and do something hard requires energy. And if you don't like it, then part of the, like, if you really don't have passion for it, part of the energy required to do something amazing is going to be spent, uh, convincing yourself to just sit down and do this. So you need some passion. Yeah. I have a mathematical explanation for that. So I think that passion in the beginning is like uh, is like the learning curve, the Dunning-Kruger curve, you know, where it's very steep in the beginning. It's very satisfying. You get a lot of, you know, kind of like, oh, I now know that, you know, you know George Washington, you know, had these different, you know, failings as a human being, you know, and like you learn all these things, but you don't learn a lot of nuance in the beginning. Uh, and then, so that curve is very steep and it's kind of, it's an exponentially rising curve that then saturates and gets flat or maybe peaks. And then, and then there's another curve called the forgetting curve, which is also exponential. So like when you learn something, uh, if you don't review it, that decay, your knowledge will decay over time. There's just other things are going into your brain and, and you're pushing out other things. As Homer Simpson said, every time I learn something, it pushes something else out of my brain. And uh, so you've got this exponential decay and this exponential growth. And what do you get when you multiply those two curves together? You get kind of like a bell-shaped curve where it rises steeply in the very beginning, kind of plateaus and then declines. So passion can get you started on the left side of that curve. But I think curiosity keeps you going and it gets you back to like every now and then the way to, to reestablish the forgetting curve and reset it back to the baseline when you knew something is to be curious. Like, why was this important? Why is this equation so fast? Why is this experiment? And that curiosity is not passion. It's actual curiosity for the, the thing that sets you out seeking in the very beginning. This, I think, is the, the, the fundamental thread. There's a lot of great threads running through this book, but everything 
to, to me boils down to how these individuals cultivated such extreme curiosity. They're able to discover new things about the entire universe. And it's amazing. Yes. And, and so I want to, I want to break down what are the, there's, there's curiosity, but, but I don't believe there's such a thing as curiosity. These people all talk about it in different ways. So mm -hmm. what would, what are kind of the, um, what's the DNA or what's the, uh, the nucleus of, of curiosity? Cause th this is fundamental to this being a self-help book. It's not only about persevering through a tough experiment. It's about, uh, you know, how they each develop curiosity. Like one, mm -hmm. one quote, I kept reading these different quotes and, or your, your different takeaways. And I kept thinking this sums up the book, but it always, I said that about almost every single quote. So, but, but there was one thing that I really related to because it's true in almost every activity ask if there's a better way and i forgot who said it maybe mathers or weiss mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. uh but he, he he pointed out ask if there's a better way now that's interesting and in, for a couple reasons one is he doesn't say look for a better way he said ask if there's a better way and i don't know if there's mm -hmm. a difference there do you think there's a difference there yeah, I think that there is a difference between asking and, and finding something. So all these projects start off as research. In other words, that they weren't known. The answer wasn't known ahead of time in that this could have been a wild goose chase. It could have been pointless. Some of these things are serendipitous. In oh, other words, oh, oh, and by, by the way, I, I want to, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, Ryan, but I want to explain, no, like ask if there's a better way in just real practical life. Like, let's say you want to buy a car that is, you know, saves on, gas and you find a Toyota Corolla, you know, asking if there's a better way means you do research on cars to see if there's a cheaper a car out there that might be more effective at saving on fuel prices and, and so on. So there's practical applications mm -hmm. to, to this question. And, and, uh, you know, so I just wanted to say that in, yeah, in, yeah, in, no, in, ch in my, chess, my, by the way, there's a saying, mm -hmm. if you find a good move, find a better move. So right. uh, this applies to everything in life. It's such an important question. Aviation, yeah, aviation. Um, so sometimes, you know, as I, I talk about, you know, I fly a little, uh, little tiny Cessnas around, and and I started off trying to become a flight instructor while I was interviewing one of these laureates, and he's the one that focuses on debunking Malcolm Gladwell's, you know, er, Anders Ericsson's ten thousand hour rule. He says it's total BS, and and anyway, we go through it. And I say, you know, one point, first of all, one thing that really strikes me of that the difference between being a university professor and a flight instructor who like some 20 year old kid, 18 year old kid could theoretically, I think be a, a flight instructor is that that's the only place in the government handbook of regulations for, you know, certified uh, people, you know, in the IRS handbook, in the, you know, Department of Energy handbook or whatever. They don't have like your students or your, your clients will need love, you know, they'll need, because they actually show Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I was never taught that as a professor, <laughs> you know, Maslow's hierarchy of need. I was never taught how to be a teacher. And I think it's, it's instructive to learn, you know, one of the lessons that, that you learn from a flight instructor, if they're any good, is that you have to learn from the mistakes of others because you're not gonna live long enough to make all of them yourself. And so I started to think, well, how can you apply that to physics? And and another lesson, you know, I think from aviation is, or not just physics, but to being a car salesman. Again, my avatar is not a physicist in this. It's like a car salesman in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's, it should be applicable to anybody. Um, you know, sometimes the best uh, way home is, is to turn around. In other words, to like, just like you're flying into a thunderstorm or near the mountains or whatever, like sometimes your best option is just to stop. You know, I'd rather be on the ground wishing I was in the sky than in the sky wishing I was right. on the ground. And so the important thing about that is not only is it a life-saving 
way to mm -hmm. think. It's hard for people to take a step backwards. It's hard in anything in yes. life to say, okay, this is not working. I'm going to start all over. This flight, I really wanted to get from Santa sunk Barbara cost. to Santa Monica, but I have to turn around. Yeah, right. Yeah. The sunken, sunken cost fallacy. That's a style of thinking that needs to be cultivated because, yes. you know, or like, let's say you're starting a business. It's really hard to say, listen, it's not, my business is not working out or maybe I can right. change it to some other model. Like you'll fight to, to the death sometimes for your business. Yeah. Like, I've seen entrepreneurs do it much to their detriment. And so that in itself is a, a, a DNA component to be able to turn around is one important component of ask if there's a, a better way. The better way might be to go home. Yeah. I mean, the one thread between this book and losing the Nobel Prize is confirmation bias, which is another fancy way of saying, you know, sunk costs. I don't know. Sunk costs is kind of fancy too. But the point being that you get so much invested in, in a direction in aviation again, you know, there's a disease called get there itis, which kills, you know, many pilots because they're like, I'll be there, James, at your, you know, at, at your party at, at you know, five o'clock sharp on Sunday afternoon and I'll get there and you please meet me. Yeah, you know, like you start to invest, like I'm going to let James down. I'm going to look like a fool. I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm not a good pilot. Blah, blah, blah. And you've got the imposter syndrome, but then it can lead to a real world consequence, not just like, oh, you know, I have to now you know, kind of maybe talk to somebody about my imposter syndrome. It could be like you get killed. Like you force the flight. You don't have enough fuel. You go into a thunderstorm. You hit a mountain. All these things are real-world consequences. So I started to think, well, how can you map this into, you know, into physics, into science, but also into, yeah, being a car salesman. Now you're a car salesman. So sometimes the best option for a customer might be to turn them away and say, well, this Camry that James really wants to buy, it's really not that what he needs because he's got five kids. You know, no, 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 we should instead, you know, go for a Suburban. And then when his daughter, like I noticed in your interview with this guy from, you know, Allied Moving, you know, that you did last week, which I found really interesting. I was listening to it with my, uh, one of my kids in the car and he thought it was really super interesting. And it's like, like originally I was like, why is he talking to some guy from Allied Moving? You know, like I used to move in high school, move people, you know, earn some money. Uh, I, most of the guys I, I, you know, was with, I, I probably didn't have that much to, uh, to really benefit except had to like bulk up and carry a refrigerator on my back by myself, uh, which I can no longer do thanks to being 50. But anyway, um, but those guys, like he, he said some things like we can't compete with some smaller rival. So like he actually said, like, I would refer them to like Joe brother, you know, I'll touch your brother's moving company rather than allied because they'll be effectively more nimble. And guess what, James? That probably earns him a client or maybe two clients or three clients later on down the road, just like the car salesman sure. who doesn't force you into a, a Camry but puts you in, tell, recommends a Suburban. Then your kids, when your daughters can drive, now you send them to him because they don't need a Suburban, right? Yeah. So sometimes the best way forward is, is sort of backwards against your best supposed interest of, you know, that you've sunk so much of your, of your resources into. That was the end of part one of Think Like a Nobel Prize winner. Also available today is part two. So learn the techniques of Nobel Prize winners so maybe you could win one also. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.